This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. City officials suggest against any major renovations that were outlined in a private sector study about the first Ontario Centre. They say the study is a valuable tool, but that uh, at this time it's going to remain status quo. There were a couple of of scenarios that this group put forward, uh, one a remodeling, another being a full-fledged renovation. To talk more about all of this, uh, Jasper uh, Kujapski is with us. He's the Hamilton lawyer and consultant who was, I guess, uh, behind this in the sense that got a group of people together and uh, showed interest and then went from there. Good afternoon, Jasper. How are you today? Excellent. Good afternoon, Scott. Good talking to you. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. So let's start at the beginning. How did all of this come about? How did you get these parties interested in coming together and and even coming forth with this idea? At the point where I, I realized in 2015, late 2014, early 2015, that clearly there was going to be a need, and I've been involved with the arena for a long time. I was a member of the Heck 5 board for six years in the 1990s. So what happened was I finally came to the view that the only way to address the aging state of an arena that is, in my view, a requirement to have first-class sports, entertainment, hospitality, and convention facilities in the cities as large as Hamilton would be to move towards what is essentially a private-public partnership in which the private sector helps fund a lot of the work that needs to be done, notwithstanding that it's a public sector-owned building. My feeling going back into that period in late 2014, early 2015, was that had I approached the city and said, listen, you have uh, a need that needs to be addressed in terms of your arena, and you should go and hire first-class architects to do a comprehensive study, it simply never would have happened because of the budgetary constraints and all the reasons that the city is under the pressure that it is at the same time. If you go to the private sector and say, do this completely on your own, just take on the responsibility of doing something significant on a building that the public sector owns, they have other things to do. They're running their own businesses, making their own profits, Mm -hmm. handling their own employees. So my feeling was is that if you could raise private sector money on a no-strings-attached basis, but with the understanding that the public sector supported it and was behind it and would facilitate and coordinate it, It's essentially turning consulting on its head. I recognize it's completely counterintuitive to have the private sector initiate a consulting report on behalf of the public sector without being asked to do so. But that's what happened here. And by going to the funding partners, such as including First Ontario Credit Union, Carmen's, Leuna, Fengate, and of course, ultimately, Ron Joyce came in with a very significant portion that got us to the full $240,000 we were able to get the money on a no-strings-attached basis, and the city agreed to facilitate and coordinate it by you know, retaining me to do that on their behalf. And that's how the study got done. Uh, so, in other words, are other businessmen and women getting involved in this for the hope of future opportunity, the chance to be a part of something bigger someday? Well, everybody has their own understanding of it. Everybody recognized from the beginning, I made absolutely clear that there were no strings attached in the sense that if you came in at the front end and helped fund a study on what ultimately could become a very significant capital project in terms of a renovation of an arena or the creation of a sports, entertainment, hospitality, and convention precinct in and around a renovated arena, that there were no promises. It wasn't if you do this at the front end, you have some guarantee at the back end of some portion of a project. Everybody understood that's not the case. Having said that, though, if you are a significant business player in the city, and you recognize that having 
new amenities also gives birth to other spin-off economic opportunities. For example, if you have a new convention slash trade center slash expo center that is going to attract much larger groups than can presently be accommodated in Hamilton, and that gives birth to new hotels, and you're in the business of building hotels, even if you don't have a specific part to play in the creation of the centers that give birth to the hotels, the fact that you help participate in the study that made that happen means that you're getting an economic benefit because now you're building something that's profitable that otherwise you wouldn't have built in any event. So it that's the connection. Now, I also believe that those who are participating in, in these studies and could participate in further studies if the city mandates this thing to go forward are, are clearly leading corporate citizens and I think would be very well received down the road if this thing comes to a procurement stage, let's say hypothetically it ever gets to that point. I think they would be very well positioned to make a good case as to why they should be involved, but they're going to have to make that case at that point. It's not because they've been promised anything in advance because they have not. Obviously, these investors feel that there is opportunity here. Is this money well spent? Well, I think it's well spent, and I think they believe that it's well spent, and I think everybody accepts and agrees that there's huge opportunity in Hamilton. Hamilton, look at the real estate prices. Look at all of the the feedback that you're starting to see in regards to interest and what's going to play out in regards to the Pier 7, Pier 8 uh, process. So uh, it's obvious that Hamilton is on the rise. Now, having said that, though, that doesn't mean it's inevitable that all of the potential that Hamilton has is going to be realized. That doesn't just happen organically. You have to make things happen in order for them to take place. So I think there is clearly going to be economic opportunity in Hamilton. Everybody sees that. I mean, I hear you talking about it on your show all the time. Everybody else has clearly recognized what is happening here. I'm not going to get into a huge debate as to whether or not this is taking place because of proactive things the city has done to attract investment or whether a significant part of it is simply the the natural build-out of the growth of the mm-hmm. Golden Horseshoe and the expansion of the GTA and everything else. That's so, a big part of it, too, isn't it, Jasper? Yeah, well, I think, yeah. I think it's a combination. I think yeah. a lot of it's happening just naturally. Some of it happens because of proactive measures that you take to attract new businesses. I think the city of Hamilton economic development people and the planning people have done a good job in that regard. But in regards to all issues, you can't just assume that that which should happen, in your opinion, is simply going to happen on its own. You have to go out and make it happen, and that's what, in large part, the discussion in regards to the arena study is about. So your thoughts on the city's reaction, which was basically status quo, obviously there is a lot on their plate right now. What now? Where does this go from here? Well, from the perspective of the staff, I never expected the staff were going to come forward and say, we recommend that the city go out and spend 68 or uh, $252 million on the arena uh, on April the 5th. I, frankly, they weren't even asked that. That's not in the report. It's not a recommendation to do it. The report doesn't tell you what you should do. The report tells you what you can do. It gives you realistic, very well Um, research. Obviously, the architects who did it are the best in the world at this kind of work. So now you know what you can do with an aging building that has extremely solid foundations and solid bones in terms of the the shell of this, this facility. As to what you should do with it, that's something that I believe has to require 
a political direction. I don't expect the staff in these tough economic times to come out and recommend a, a significant capital investment solely by the city. And frankly, I would not ask the city to do this purely with taxpayer public money. This has to be done if it is to come to fruition in a complex, comprehensive public-private partnership in which you have significant private sector investment and public sector facilitation and coordination. So what happens next in terms of next steps will be something we discuss in more detail when we get to the meeting on April 5th at the, at the City Council. And my recommendation to the City Council is that there is more homework that needs to be done. I don't believe that the city is yet in a position to, to move forward with, a, with, a, with any kind of a renovation unless you know exactly what private sector investment and, and partnership is out there. But you're not going to find that out by simply saying we're not going to do anything to facilitate that. I believe that the city should move forward in a model that mirrors how this study was done, which is to facilitate and coordinate getting private sector investment on a no-strings-attached basis to do the next round of homework needed to mm. get to the point where you have the business plans and the partnership in place that could actually see the financing of a real capital program. And what are the chances of that, Jasper? Well, I'm not, we'll see how the discussion goes. If, if, if the only two options that you have are approve a completely public sector funded $68 million transfer, renovation or the full $252 million transformation, that simply isn't going to happen. If the council position is we're not doing anything to facilitate anything and we're simply going to essentially put a Band-Aid on the building and just try to keep the lights on, I think that would be a very unfortunate reality, but then it ends at that point. The, the, the option that the city has at virtually no risk to itself financially is the one where it continues to work on putting together the partnership that ultimately funds this under their direction and leadership because it's their building, they own it, as well as address their, their you know, requirements in regards to the precinct development. The fact of the matter is, is that you have an antiquated 32-year-old arena and you have a convention center that is too small. And I can't imagine that the city's response to those realities is to say, we don't even want to talk about this. We don't yeah. even want to go down a road of studying and trying to move a partnership forward that addresses that. I think that is, that it, it seems remarkable to me that, that the ambitious city would take that kind of a position. Well, again, but, you've, gone, you've gone this far, and it's certainly uh, not taken too much from the city, so why would you not continue and have the discussion? That's certainly going to be my pitch to the city. I think that they will have an opportunity. I know they can have an opportunity to take the same model that essentially gave them almost a quarter of a million dollar study in return for the $50,000 investment they made. They can mirror that model over the next number of months into a maximum, say, 12 months worth of homework to get to the point where this thing is, is much further down the road than it is today. The question I simply put out to people is this. In light of what had happened with the Memorial Cup, I'm sure you, I know that you yep. chatted about mm -hmm. it and others reflected on the fact that, that, that it was unsuccessful in terms of the bid for the Memorial Cup Canadian Junior Hockey Championship. And that shone a spotlight, in a sense, on the, the state of the arena. And my point is that if we're not having this conversation, Scott, you're, you would still have reported on the Memorial Cup story. That would have happened anyway. Mm -hmm. And people would have said, what are we doing with our arena? And I'm not sure what the answers would have been, but I can tell you, if we're not having this conversation and I had not done the work that I did 
a year and a half ago, there's no $240,000 study. There's no architectural report. There's no staff report on it. There's no meeting on April 5th. We're not even having this chat. So if you were here today, 15 months ahead of where you would have been if the study had not been done, then where could we be 12 months from now if we continue to mirror the same model that produced that study and can produce more work at virtually no risk to the city? That's the route I hope that they take, but that ultimately will be up to them. That, this is an absolutely brilliant idea, and I, and, I, and I can't see why they would not want to move forward on this. It, it, it's a great way to establish these partnerships and, of course, determine what the future is for, for the building in downtown Hamilton. So is the next step, Jasper, coming up with uh, a hypothetical shopping list? Here's what we could do, bop, 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 and, and what would that be? I mean, you talked about a small convention center, a big arena. Do we make the big arena smaller, the convention center bigger? Um, many have said that, obviously, the arena is too big for what we need with the Bulldogs and such, yet it brings lots of big concerts into the town as well. When they say the arena is, I don't say the arena is too big. My view is that the arena needs to be obviously transformed. With regard to the convention center, clearly the current uh, structure is far too small. A city the size of Hamilton should have a convention center similar in scope to the ones in Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Halifax, which can accommodate upwards of 2,500 to 3,000 people in one room. We can barely accommodate 1,000 people in the, in the largest room downtown. So uh, my view about the arena is you don't make it smaller. What you do is in option one of the renovation plan, you're getting essentially 8,000, 8,500 premium seats with new boxes, but you still have the upper balcony and the, and the opportunity to open it when necessary for the big concerts, the Juno Awards events of that kind. And option two is the full build-out. But option one leads to option two. You, when you do option, if option one is ever done, it doesn't stop at that point. You can leave it there, and it makes sense on its own, or you can then add on to it at a later time. So the plan was always designed to have one lead to the other. In regard to a convention center, I believe at some point Hamilton, yes, has to address the fact that if it wants to compete, with the cities that I think it should be competing with, which are the Ottawa's, the Edmonton's, the Winnipeg's, and the Halifax's, then there has to be a new convention center and hotel complexes built in the city. And there are clearly identifiable ways of doing that, which start with land assembly. The city has to, in a sensitive and politically astute way, identify the appropriate sites that it feels could be, appro- could be used for that purpose and then work towards getting that land assembled for, the, for, for that kind of a project. So it's a much longer-term thing, say, than the arena, which, I mean, technically you could start tomorrow if you had the money. That money is not in the bank. That's going to have to be sought in what I believe is that public partnership model. But, yes, I think the city has to be able and is in a position to address its, its sports, entertainment, convention, and hospitality infrastructure requirements And the way to do that in specific terms, we'll we'll get into more detail on the April 5th meeting, but it's all done on the basis of the partnership model that we've talked about, and it's done on the basis that it's not being funded directly uh, in terms of capital investment by the city, and it's also funded on the model that was coming from the Edmonton uh, downtown precinct uh, building that's now home to to the hockey team that it does not have any effect on the on the municipal tax levy. That has to be the rule. It cannot have any increase in the municipal tax levy. Man, this sounds almost too good to be true, Jasper. It sounds like you've planted the seeds of something that could be very, very exciting. Good luck with this. 
Well, we'll do our best. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We remember uh, when Donald Trump first uh, came to power as president of the United States, one of the first things he did was make a uh, big to-do and sign a, a whole pile of things in front of a whole pile of people and get things moving down there in the United States of America. And that included a travel ban on, uh, I guess, initially seven, then reduced to six uh, mostly Muslim countries. And, of course, that was uh, that created some uh, controversy. Judges spoke up against that. Uh, then they came out with a watered-down version of the initial bill. And, of course, a Hawaiian judge had uh, pretty much did the same thing that the other two did. So now that judge has indefinitely extended... Uh, the block of President Trump revised ban on travel. Uh, what does this mean? How does it all move forward? Where are we now? And what I find really funny in all of this, or ironic, funny is probably not the, the good word, uh, what I find ironic in all of this is that this whole thing was supposed to be temporary for 90 days until they, quote, figure out what the heck is going on. Well, my goodness, considering the amount of time they've already been in, we must be very close to 90 days, if not past. Um... Have you figured it out yet? Maybe we don't even need this ban now. It was only supposed to be temporary in the first place. Uh, let's bring in Elliot Tepper, professor of political science, Carleton University, and is with us now. Hello, Elliot. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. We have more sunshine in Ottawa, apparently, than you currently are. Yes. Uh, how is that working? I don't get that. Well, 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 hopefully it will make its way down this way. Uh, where does this leave Donald Trump's travel ban? Well, the travel ban and everybody's calling it that now, has been, it's, there was a restraining order put on by the Hawaiian uh, judge initially saying we have to figure this out. That's temporary. It's now going over to an injunction. So until the injunction is removed, that ban on the ban remains in force. So right now, in effect, the executive order, which was intended to protect the security of America, he said, is uh, on hold. So how does that injunction, how is that injunction removed? How does it move beyond that? Well, people who have been watching this closely have noticed something very interesting, Scott. The very first, the first time, just a little while ago, when this was uh, announced and then immediately the courts got involved and stopped it, immediately after that, like the same day, the Department of Justice weighed in and said, we're going to act on this. So far, there's been nothing like that happening. The Department of Justice, to uh, what would happen now is the Department of Justice could, has to weigh in, and then it goes to another court saying, okay, we can test this, and the next court, and then the next court, and then the next court, until the decision is finally rendered at a definitive level after a number of court levels. The next step up is the circuit court, in this case the Ninth Circuit Court. But the Department of Justice hasn't done that. So there's now, I think, a question mark. Why, since this is such a centerpiece, is the president and his team not moving more quickly? And I think the answer is they're all waiting for Neil Gorsuch. The, the Supreme Court, if it reaches that level, oh my. <laughs> and headed that level, is balanced four and four. The vacancy there was after the death of a conservative Republican, Aliot. Uh, well, we don't. Scalia, we don't need to go back into that. But that was supposed to be a Democratic appointment. That mm -hmm. is, that happened under Obama. The Republicans refused even to hold a hearing on a highly qualified judge. Now another highly qualified justice has been put forward to fill that spot. 
but as a Republican, by a Republican, not as a Republican, excuse me, but as a highly qualified judge under the Republicans. And this time, uh, the Republican uh, majority in the Senate says, we're pushing this through. It's going to happen. It's going to happen next Friday. If it does, then the court goes back to being, you know, five to four, and the expectation is that the new justice would tilt the ballots and, you know, approve the ban. However, you know, once a justice is on there, you're, you're never really sure. Is that a long shot? Well, getting this justice confirmed turns out to be more difficult than anticipated. He's so highly qualified, and at the same time, uh, the hearings have gone on and on, and there's been ample opportunity to question him, and so the vetting has gone on, and the, clearly the Republican majority in the Senate plans to go ahead and vote for him, but 60 votes are needed. Uh, the Republicans have 52 votes on the Senate floor. They need a number of Democrats to get up to their 60, and the Democrats are now saying, as a party, we're going to oppose this. We didn't like his answers on Roe versus Wade and, and on Brown versus Board of Education and other things. I don't, and then the Republicans have said, no, we will change the rules of the Senate so it's a simple majority. We don't want to do that, but we will. This candidate is going to be appointed uh, the next justice on the court. If that happens, it will change the balance. And if the travel ban reaches up that high, it is anticipated the president's position would be upheld. Uh, so it's 5-4 now? No, it's 4-4 four, four now. 4-4, four, four. he would be the deciding there. factor, obviously. Yes, he's the, the balance. And there was a highly qualified justice uh, nominated under President Obama, but the Republicans wouldn't even hold a hearing. On, they didn't do their constitutional duty, basically, which they're obligated. And they said, no, 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 it's too close to an election a year out. If that's and, the case, though, Elliot, I mean, know, wouldn't they just pretty much uh, hold off on everything until they got the balance of power in the Supreme well, Court? Because that's uh, pretty much the way everything's heading. Buried away, uh, this is out of sight, generally speaking, the reason the lower courts... Our, uh, the Republicans are saying, are so uh, negative on the travel ban as it's been written twice now is because there's so many Democrats have been appointed on, over the years. Right. So these really, they don't say this too loudly, but what hasn't been noticed is that the Republicans not only refused to fill the Supreme Court uh, nominee, the, the vacancy, but all along under Obama, they refused to fill the vacancies up and down the court system. There's a hundred and I forget the title. I think yeah. 128 uh, vacancies. So they can go ahead and fill those up, too. So a lot of politics is going on. And, of course, this is very high politics because the president's credibility is on the line. Whether the security of America is on the line is a totally different question. Will Republican, I mean, even if this does, even if this scenario works out for Donald Trump, uh, what sort of guarantee are there that even Republican judges will side with him, especially when we've seen happen what's happened with uh, things like the health care bill? Well, I mean, is, is, I mean, does he have that much support? I mean, just because he has the numbers, does that mean they're all going to vote that way? No, once a court, once a justice, once a person who's a lawyer becomes a judge, they are not predictable. The Supreme Court has been quite predictable, but there's a couple swing voters uh, on, the, on the highest court of all. But all up and down the system, once a case is before a judge, the judge um, will decide it as that person sees fit. And that certainly doesn't guarantee a ruling in any direction. So is this something that uh, uncharacteristically Donald Trump's just going to let go? He's not going to make a big stink about this? Because no, normally he'd be tweeting all about this Hawaiian judge. Yes, and they're not. Uh, what's interesting as well 
has been the silence of the Department of Justice, but also the silence of the Twitter feed. Uh, so far, he's had other things on his mind, like Obamacare, and who knows what else. And also, I suspect that people have put a, a strong word in his ear that attacking a sitting judge on their ethnicity or bias is probably a bad idea. Uh, justices up and down the line, including uh, the nominee that he's got there, Neil Gorsuch, said that he didn't like that either. So uh, there may be uncharacteristic silence on the Twitter front. So how long before this rears its ugly head again? Are we Is that it for the travel ban? I mean, we're not going to hear anything more about this until the issues get settled at the Supreme Court level? It's unknown. It's highly unlikely this will just stay quiet. It's too central to not only Donald Trump and his position, but to the core position of his own followers and much of the Republican Party. Uh, one of the, you know, I'm a political scientist, so I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer or a legal scholar. To me, one of the interesting things here is the degree to which fear of the other has become so central to politics. Hmm. And therefore, borders are coming back. Borders are no longer gateways. They're now becoming increasingly barriers. And we see that also in other, other spheres. So the return of the fear of the other as a motivating factor that gets people elected and that uh, animates politics, I think, is really the big story here. Where is this going? That's what politics is about. We've got, I don't want to comment too much on the domestic Canadian scene. My colleagues all do that. But we've seen candidates here and in Europe, certainly in Europe, who have said, we have a winning model here. You talk about... Uh, immigrants and the other pouring across the borders unvetted and this is a great vote getter and it mobilizes and it overthrows the established parties and the established parties after have to either move in that direction or uh, they'll be replaced by so we'll have to see how the voters react remember just yesterday scott the brexit vote was finally yeah. uh, put forward now the eu it's you know it's a long way away from us on our day-to-day -day activities but the eu has been a miracle of transforming Europe, which it was a cockpit of war, into a bastion of peace and prosperity and promotion of democracy. And last July, the, the British voted to leave. Animating that election, and indeed much of the politics across Europe now, we have an important election coming in France coming up and in Germany in the fall, much of that has been animated by the same general impulse that immigration is a problem, refugees are a threat, People who don't, there's fear of the other. And if you can mobilize opinion on fear of the other, you can raise barriers where there are barriers, particularly in Europe, <laughs> have been, you know, lowered to the point of being eliminated. They're going back up now. So the EU is being basically taken apart over this issue, and America's politics is certainly affected by it. Will ours also be affected by it? That's up to the Canadian voter. Uh, it seems now we live in a land of extremes. It's either extreme right or it's extreme left. And it's up to the voters to decode the truth in all of this. As you said, lots of politicking going on. Uh, so even when it attempts to come back to the middle, it goes too far to the other side. How do we, how do we get back to the middle? How do we stop this land of extreme? This is where leadership matters. Leadership helps set the, the tone, uh, coming back to the things we're talking about now. Uh, as we know, there's been some interesting things happening on the Canada-U.S. border. And, mm -hmm. uh, hard to explain things, but 
one thing that has happened in the United States is a hotel executive there, a major hotel chain, has said travel is a very fragile thing and perception is a factor. So if the perception goes out that people aren't welcome, that borders are going to be hard to cross, harder and harder to cross, that certain individuals are actually a threat. So we actually have what, girl guides in Canada saying they're not going to cross the border. Well, there's an interesting article in that, on that in the Canadian press today yeah. that says that the perception is everyone's not going to the United States because it's so difficult to get in, when in fact, since uh, in the last year or so, they've increased. Well, we've got very limited data on this. I've been looking at it, as you know, we've discussed this uh, leading up to this call. We have a three-year period of facts. And there's quite startling, so that indeed in, uh, in 2015 there were something like over 30,000 Americans were turned away while attempting to come into Canada. Mm-hmm. And last year it had dropped to 23,000, uh, 52. But if you go back a further year, 2014, there were only 7,500, 7,509 people to be exact. Yeah. So it went from 2014. 1475, then up to 30 yeah. in one year. And, and these are U.S. citizens not allowed into Canada. So, yes, these are Americans who were turned away while attempting. So what's going on? And the answer is, well, we don't have a lot of facts, but speculation is, is that what happened was there was a change in the, <laughs> in the mechanics yeah. in the mechanics of data collection yeah. relating to security. The information. Mm-hmm. So people would show up at the border and say, yeah, here, you know, just let me in. Yep. And somebody will tap into a database and said, well, when you were 17, you had a marijuana conviction, so you can't come in. You're a criminal. Oh. So it might be something as simple as that. We aren't too sure. We have the opposite as well. The perception is that Canadians going to America are getting more and more hassled, and we have a lot of anecdotal evidence of that. But the numbers don't show that no. in the most immediate period. Well, what's going on there? Uh, are the anecdotes wrong? We don't have facts, but a good speculation is a lot fewer people want to leave Canada and take their chance at the border. So until we get the figures of how many people have been trying to cross, we don't really know. But one possibility is that this fear of the other, the raising of barriers, the borders, the security, the perception that America is no longer a welcoming place affects the number of people from Canada who are willing to try to cross that border. In your opinion, getting back to the Donald Trump travel ban, Mm -hmm. where is it going? Where will it be a year, two years from now? It depends on on the courts, because it's now in the hands of the the courts. The uh, Trump administration faced a court to uh, defeat. They revised and put forward a new version of the same thing. It has now been banned, you know, that's been stopped in Hawaii. It's going to go up another level in the court system, up another level in the court system. So if it keeps being defeated, if it's defeated all along and then gets to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court might be reluctant to overturn all the lower courts. We'll have to see. It's now in the hands of, of the courts and whether the courts will be favorable this way or that way is unknown. It's unlikely he would be willing to revise that a third time. It's better for Donald Trump, in a way, to say, okay, I was blocked by these, by these elites in the court. My people, uh, you have to know that I'm doing my best for you. I'm trying to keep America safe. So he can turn this to his advantage 
even if it's a defeat, but a defeat is a defeat. Uh, he said, one last quick question, he yeah. said that this was a temporary ban for 90 or 120 yes. days, depending upon where you were from. By the time all this gets through the courts, that will be will have passed. So all he needed was 90 days to figure it all out. Uh, hasn't he figured it all out? Could it be that we'll get it all figured out and all this will be a moot point? Yes. If the purpose of this was actually to, you know, do something about the borders and to keep America safe, if that was actually the purpose... That's a very fair question you've raised, Scott, and I haven't heard anybody else raise it. You've had your 90 days, so yeah. there was there was going to be something like a permanent ban on Syrian refugees, which is also uh, in, under the court order. So the if the purpose, however, is political, if it's to say, I made a promise, I'm keeping my promise, I'm here to keep America safe, I'm not going to let these people in, then... Uh, the political purpose has been achieved already, in a sense, and, and would be achieved even if it's rejected by the courts. Good point. Elliot Tepper has been with us, professor of political science, Carleton University. A, high, a Hawaiian judge has indefinitely extended the block of President Trump's travel, a revised travel ban. And uh, I guess we wait to see what happens from here. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I've told this story a bazillion times, and I've told it again, and I'll tell it again, uh, simply because it was about 10 years ago now. And I remember going to a shopping mall. It was around Christmas time, and my daughter was about four years old. We were taking her to see Santa Claus. We do it, we do it every year, uh, or we did it every year. It sort of became a regular thing, and we'd go to this restaurant ahead of time in the mall, and then, uh, you know do the whole Santa thing. And then my other boy came along and we, you know, we, we kept doing it. So I remember being, you know, since we 10 years ago, social media just sort of gaining its ground, just sort of gaining traction and, and, and not as all consuming as it is now. And I remember uh, this being around Christmas time, there was a family next to us, very large table, must have been 12, 14 people sitting around the table of uh, various ages from, uh, you know, kids all the way up through to, to, to adulthood. And I remember looking over at one point and saying to my wife, look at that. And we looked over and every single member of the family was looking at a device. And instead of the dinner table being a, uh, uh, filled with laughter, talking, noise, it was dead silent. You could hear, people's, you could hear people clinking their, their forks and knives on their plates. Because there was no noise coming from this group of 12 to 14 people. Because they weren't talking to each other. Well, maybe they were, but they were all looking down. And I remember saying to my wife uh, at that time, like, that is unbelievable. Look at that. And now fast forward 10 years later, you go into, into any restaurant, into any establishment, you'll see the exact same thing. You'll see the exact same thing happening. I've often sat in a situation where I've been out in a restaurant with my wife and I'll see a young couple and it's obviously a date. And, you know, one person's on their phone and the other person's kind of staring around the room. And I'm thinking, has technology become so consuming that it has made us considerate and how, inconsiderate? And how do we find that balance? How do we find the balance of... And it was interesting, we, were, we, we had a psychologist on the air last uh, week talking about anxiety and anxiety, especially in kids and how it's on the increase. They get all these people coming into their practice. These kids are, they're all anxious. And one of the things they said was because there's no human interaction, 
because they're not talking with each other. They're not expressing. They're, everything's 140 characters or less. Or maybe uh, a sentence in a picture. And there's no real in-depth conversation that goes beyond that. Let's bring in Oren Amate, registered psychologist and media consultant, docamate.com, to find out more. And he is with us now. Hello, Oren. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, We certainly do appreciate this. Has the digital world made us less considerate, or are we just too consumed? Well, it doesn't have to be both. I'm sorry, it, they're not mutually exclusive. It can be both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, you know, look, I, I always sound like such a cliche when I say this, but, um, you know, our evolution hasn't, our brains haven't changed that much. Technology has, but we haven't. Who we are as these creatures that have been on the planet for hundreds of thousands of years in the current form, okay, that hasn't changed too much. So the fact is, it all boils down to what messaging the parents are giving in their family. Okay, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but you know, as as much as technology changes, all right, it's up to the parents to help shape their children so that no matter what the environment looks like, they're able to adapt to it and you know and act functionally, functionally, you know, opposite of what you just described for the last five minutes. Okay, everything you described, uh, you know, I I consider that a breakdown in functioning, but that's because the parents haven't you know adapted their, or mm-hmm. haven't um, given the children the tools, haven't modeled for the children the proper way of dealing with these situations and, as you alluded to, with other people. And, and, and in this case, are involved in it themselves doing the same thing. What happens, like, you know, at one time when this all started, there was a gap between the kids and the parents. Now the parents are just as bad as the kids are. Yeah, they are. And, you know, go to any park, go to any school, performance, yeah. go anywhere, hockey arenas, anything, and all the damn parents are on their phones. Not, you know, the kids look up. They don't see their parents, you know, watching them. Yeah. Uh, like, look, I've got three kids. I've had to go through all this stuff, um, you know, and I'll be on my phone as well sometimes or a computer. But for the most part, I'm engaged with them. And, yes, yeah, so the kids are modeling what they're seeing their parents doing. Um, and, and going back to the consideration, again, it doesn't matter what technology is going on. If you have a parent who teaches the kid, you know, when you're talking to somebody, be attentive, yeah. don't interrupt, you know, be mindful of your environment, say please and thank you. If the parent's not doing that, they failed as a parent. Or even look at people when they're talking to you. Oh, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and respond to them, and, and, you know, again, just be engaged, be present, uh, you know. Kids who are being raised on cell phones and you know tablets and everything from a very young age, we're talking from like babies, basically mm-hmm. toddlers, we don't know yet what it's doing to the wiring of the brain. That is messing them up most likely uh, to some degree. We just don't know how so. But the fact is, even with that, even being messed up that way, our brains are wired for that human face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact. So parents teach the kids that. And again, look at, look at the parks, look at restaurants. You're not seeing that eye contact between the parents and the kids. Kids talking, parents not even looking at them. Mm-hmm. So how is the kid learning to be you know, attentive to the people around them? How do we teach the parents? I mean, I don't want to sound like a couple of old farts here that are, that are against <laughs> technology. Where do we find the balance? How do we get the parents to get, or maybe is it that they were never really that good parents in the first place? Technology has just made it worse. <laughs> well, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I've, I was started being a parent about 20 years ago. Um, you know, I was really being attuned to uh, what was going on around me. I'm now a parenting expert. I'm a court-appointed uh, parenting expert, so um, I can speak with some authority to that. Uh, I would say that, you know, the average parent isn't that great. I, I consider myself an average parent. I try really hard. I'm not that great, um, but I do try. And I think what we need to do is get parents back into that mode of trying, giving a kid a tablet, giving them a phone or whatever. That's not trying. 
That's like that's the old school TV thing. You know, we'll plop the kid in front of the TV for twelve hours a day. Yeah. I mean, think about that. If any parent went to um, to you know to a school meeting and said, "Hey, everybody, uh, I let my parent my kid watch this TV for twelve hours a day. Yeah. Aren't I a great parent?" They would all look at them with scorn. Very true. I mean, in our generation, it was kids were spending way too much time in front of the television set. Now, of course, it's just a different screen. Yeah, and the thing is, the parents are fooling themselves, thinking, but there's, it's interactive. It's not That's passive. Right, yeah. They're talking to people. That's not talking to people. Um, it is mostly passive anyway, because um, you know they're checking out Snapchat. They're doing whatever else. They're not really engaged. They think they are, but it's not the kind of social engagement that we, as you know, these primates, these advanced primates that we are, that we need. We don't get enough from that technology. That's what parents have to realize. And uh, I remember reading or hearing somewhere that, you know, we can try to multitask all we want, but again, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're taking attention away from one of the tasks we're doing by trying to do the other. I, honestly, I, I walked in and I saw my, uh, my young one, uh, not that young, but with a, with a device in front of her and the TV on. And I'm thinking, how, how can you do this? What are you doing? You've got two devices going at once. I, I, I don't, well, I'm listening to one. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing, Oren. I, when, I when I looked at the TV, she had the closed caption on. So it's, my goodness, you can't even pay enough attention here. You've got the closed caption on. One of these devices has got to go. Right, and, and that's funny because people think he can do a lot of it. I mean, if you want to have a real test of how badly people multitask, and I've done this myself, I'll put a podcast on, all right? I'm listening, and while I'm doing the podcast, I'm checking out emails or doing something else, okay? And after five minutes, just stop and go, okay, I want to recite how much, like, how much can I remember yeah. from what I heard? And people think that they'll do 80, 90, 100%. You're lucky if you get 10 or 20%. You hear it a few words, you didn't get the context, you didn't get the full story. And I think that's a great metaphor for what's going on. This fast-paced, everyone's going 100 miles an hour, they think they're doing great, we're multitasking. And as you said, the, the science does show, when people multitask, you're actually detracting from some other job. So, you know, you're not, doing, you're not getting three jobs done at once, you're doing three pretty crappy jobs. Uh, how do you draw the balance when it comes to homework and devices? Because lots of times kids will say, well, I need my device to, uh, to do the homework. You come back into the room and, oh, that doesn't look like homework on there. That is so tricky. And I've had a lot of parents, because uh, I deal with a lot of families, um, ask that question. And I'm a big fan of letting kids uh, learn through experience. So if the kid says, no, no, I can do it fine, you go, fine. You give them a certain period of time, you say like one month or something, and you see how the report card turns out. You've got to be on top of things. And if you can see an actual you know, decrease in their productivity and performance, then you say to them, look, you earned this. You're not getting the tablet or whatever. Um, or I'm going to check in on you. Or you, know, you have to have the screen facing a certain way so I can look easily. You don't want the kids thinking you're hovering. You don't want to be um, overly intrusive. So you want to give the kid a chance to do it themselves. And if they can't do it, if it's too much for them, which it is, unfortunately, for a lot of kids, then you negotiate with them. You don't say, okay, this is how it's going to be. You say, okay, here's the concern. I gave you a chance. It didn't work. Here's what I think we should do. What do you think? And, of course, you're the parent, so the negotiation in the end, you decide. But um, let the kid be an active participant. But let them know they earned whatever new discipline or whatever new structure is in place or system because they couldn't do it their way. But they have to learn that first. Hmm. It was interesting. I've had the same discussion with my daughter over playing music while she's doing homework. And she has said, you know, there's times where they will let them listen to music in class. I remember doing this as a kid. I remember doing this experiment in grade seven and eight. And they said, okay, no, it's not going to happen. And it, would, it worked for a while, but then it just did become too much of a, a distraction. How do you find that balance? How do you, a good example with what you just gave and how you teach the, the child to, to, to see those, what those boundaries are. Um, but 
even something as soothing as music. Is that a distraction? It depends what kind of music. Um, if you recognize the music, it's, is it a distraction? If it's something that you are familiar with and it almost becomes background noise, it's not that much of a distraction. Well, everyone's different. Some kids have difficult, uh, you know, auditory, or they have deficient auditory processing. So when you have that noise, it's competing with, you know, the rest of your cognitive functioning. So it all depends on the kid. For an average child, background music shouldn't be too much of a detriment, uh, you know, to, to their work habits. But everyone's different. Um, and it's the same idea, you know, you give them a chance, let them try, and if they're not able to produce at their normal level, then you've got to have some negotiation. Maybe find different types of music, classical music, for example. I, said, I brought that up. I said, great, we'll put on some classical. <laughs> well, no, no I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll put on headphones with classical, put on some Baroque classical music, and it's supposed to stimulate the brain. There's yeah. even a debate about whether it really works, but they do say <laughs> that it does, you know, really trigger a lot of, uh, I guess, neuro- neuronal activity in the brain. It helps align the uh, hemispheres better. Oren Amate has been with us, registered psychologist and media consultant, docamate.com to find out more. Oren, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Let's bring in Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Uh, He is with us now. Hello, Theo. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So you're sitting at a restaurant and you're having uh, dinner with friends or whatever, and you look across the uh, table. It's kind of a romantic place. Uh, there's a uh, young couple and they're having dinner or whatever, and a glass of wine perhaps, and one person is on the phone or on their device. Uh, at what point, how long do you go before you say, hey, uh, can you put that away and talk to me? <laughs> Wait a second. Am I a member of the couple or am I watching the couple? <laughs> I mean, I... You can do either scenario, Theo. <laughs> Feel free. Well, uh, well, you know what? It is It is getting tough, though. If you look around, if you go at the dinner, it's how many times do you look around and see actual people at a table? All the time. Device, All right? the time. So, so um, I particularly wouldn't put up with it, but then that's probably why I don't end up with a lot of romantic dinners. I just, you know, I don't. I but that don't could be feel. a gener- that could be a generational thing, Theo. What about people who are in their twenties? Yeah, maybe that's the thing to do. I suppose. Like, um, I mean, they seem to be happy enough doing it. I don't really think that uh, in the long run it really works in terms of improving their relationships. So I think, you know, I think as much as we become accustomed to having these things as distractions and it becomes part of our daily life, it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect our ability to connect with another person, understand another person, feel heard by another person, feel like we care for another person, know what's going on in their lives. These are distractions, and they do get in a way of us being able to really connect on a more deep personal level, I think. Are we just sounding like old farts who don't accept uh, technology, though? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> how do you how do you get the point across? And I, I had this conversation with my fourteen year old daughter the other night, who was doing homework. I shouldn't tell these stories out of school, but uh, doing homework at the dining room table, and she's got her device there because she's using it for her homework. Yeah. And uh, of course, I walk in, and uh, she's sort of videoing herself while she's doing um, homework. But it's uh, it's time lapse, so it's all kind of a creative, neat kind of thing she's doing. And it's like, I'm sorry, Alicia but how can you possibly concentrate on what you're doing when there's another device in, or when there's a device in the room that's taking your attention away from what you're supposed to be focused on? This is a very good question. Did, you hear, did she hear you ask it? No, she just uh, <laughs> talked to whoever she had on FaceTime or chat or whatever the hell yeah. it is. No, and I mean, I, and again, I, you know, I don't want to sound like an old guy when I'm having this discussion with her. Well, the good thing about it is that we're now getting more and more research on 
really the impacts of this on learning, for instance, in schools. You know, we, we've uh, had this whole first wave of we need to embrace technology and we used to connect uh, kids through their new technologies, through technology. Uh, that's the way of the future. And so we have to bring this into the classroom and work with kids with them, with those, with those devices. And there, I think there are times when you can do that. But in general, what uh, the research is saying is that more, the more people have these devices, even just old school laptops, the more they have them open as opposed to taking notes with pen and paper, um, the less they are learning, the less they're able to kind of concretize and take in and actually uh, make use of that information. So we're getting some uh, sort of now research saying uh, this isn't just a harmless kind of distraction thing. This is getting in the way of people learning. Is it making us more inconsiderate or are we just consumed with it? We don't mean to be rude. We're just, I got something more important here. Well, you know what? I think we're still pretty polite. I think, you know, when we bump into each other because we're looking down at our textbook, at our text, uh, texting, we bump into people who still say, we're, oh, we're, I'm sorry, sorry about that. So we're polite after we bump into them, but we're distracted enough to bump into them in the first <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Right? It's not like we don't care when we bump into them. Yeah. We're sorry, uh, but we're so distracted we're still going to bump into them. So, so it's not making us more incon- inconsiderate. Well, I mean, it depends on what your definition of inconsiderate is. I mean, if you were really considerate, maybe you would go, wait a second, I'm walking down a hallway with a whole pile of people walking my way as well. Maybe I shouldn't be looking down. Maybe I should be looking up so I don't bump them in the first place. Uh, Will this come back and bite us? Where is this going? I I remember talking to a psychologist not too long ago, and, and she was talking about how she's seeing so much more anxiety with kids uh, nowadays than ever used to. Um, and one of the things she said was that they were not communicating enough with each other. Uh, everything's in, you know, 140 characters or in a sentence with a picture attached to it. We're not, we're not having those personal relationships. Is that accurate? Well, there's a couple of things about that. I, there's research that shows that um, sort of watching young parents with uh, infants and the infant straining, trying to do everything possible to try to get the parents' uh, eye contact, because eye contact is really important, sort of connecting, bonding. These infants are doing everything possible to try to get the parents' attention who are actually, while they're with their kids, they're actually on their devices as opposed to connecting and making eye contact with kids. And so raises interesting questions of how does that impact relationships in terms of basic, even basic attachment. So um, we look at that, and we also are seeing, is it completely... Uh, correlation. That's completely a fluke of coincidence that there's a rise in attention deficit disorder at the same time as this proliferation of devices. Yeah. Is that really a coincidence? And so I would suspect that maybe it's not, and so that might be part of what is sort of coming back to bite us. It's going to be interesting in 10 to 20 years to see where we all end up with this. It's, uh, yeah, it would be. I, I, I hope that we've kind of go kind of sort of back circle and say, wait a second, we've got to get control of our lives and make sure we connect more meaningfully with people because we're missing something. You know, there's no way of replacing that, you know, face-to-face, you know, real connection with the person, you know, being able to look at them, have them see us as well in order for us to feel loved and cared for and connected and all that kind of stuff. You can't, you can't replace that with the device. You can't, sure, I mean, it's kind of neat to connect with a whole pile of people a lot of things. It's very entertaining and interesting. But it doesn't replace that sense of connection and uh, sort of the intimate connection that I think we really, really need and that we're wired to have. Theo Sellis has been with, with us, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Theo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
You're welcome, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.